She thumps a cane and drinks champagne She's formidable and judgmental But we can guarantee That she's a quintessential Lady D But recognizes great potential What would Danbury do? Welcome to What Would Danbury Do? A podcast about the Bridgerton series from A to V. As you know, this season we're looking at the Netflix adaptation and it's challenged us to learn a little about all kinds of things, from costumes to camera angles, something to something else. But to help us along, we've rounded up friends and experts. Vanessa Hughes is the host of ABC Classics Drive Show and a good friend of mine. I met her a few years ago working in live radio, and I can't think of anyone I'd rather learn about dead old white man music from. Vanessa talks me through the way classical music has been used in Bridgerton and helps demystify the genre a little more. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as at BridgertonPod and Instagram as WWDDPod. And join the conversation using the hashtag WWDDPod. Have you ever seen A Knight's Tale? Yes. With Heath Ledger. Do you remember the ballroom dance scene where they start off with a a period-appropriate Renaissance dance of some kind and then it becomes Golden Years by David Bowie? (laughs) I forgot that that's what happened. It's an affront to cinema. It just, the whole thing with their weird feathers in their hair and the makeup, they were trying to do what Bridgerton nailed. I'm going to be honest. I love that movie and I love every Me too. every I messy love that blacksmith minute of it. Oh, God, I love I, Paul yes. Bettany as Chaucer. That's a bold <laughs> choice. Look, the whole movie's a bit of a hot mess. <laughs> yeah, every messy moment of it mm. is just a delight. Yeah. But okay, that's there is a way to get this wrong. <laughs> there is definitely a way to get it wrong. Hello, hello. I'm Vanessa Hughes. I present Classic Drive on ABC Classic. Vanessa, we we decided to try and find someone who knows about classical music. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm the best expert, but I'm certainly qualified. I believe I'm qualified. We'll see. At the very least, I, I feel like you might be able to help us talk about the music in Bridgerton as though we know things about classical music and string quartets. Look, we all know about all these things because we hear them all the time in TV and movies. I consume offensive amounts of TV and movies and that's how one gets to know the orchestra or a string quartet. So you know more than you think already. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to ask a super super basic question. Mm-hmm. Is there set instruments that get used in a string quartet? Look, there are rules that get broken. Um, and it can get quite complicated the more instruments you add. But generally speaking, in the realms of the tightest buttered musical industry of classical music, a string quartet will have two violins, a viola and a cello. But technically a string quartet could be any number of string instruments. You could have three double basses or four double basses, but they tend to get called different things. So you might have a piano trio that will tend to be, you know, a piano, a violin and a cello. One of the reasons that this is interesting to to me, to us, is that in the Bridgerton series, the books, there is a family called the Smythe Smiths and it's four women who are atrocious at 
playing music and they put on a musicale and they invite as many people as possible to come and sit and listen to them like butcher Mozart. Yep. Bach, I think. I'm sure. <laughs> like, and it's and it's one of for a lot of fans, for a lot of the book fans, it's one of the most joyous moments because you have these things of like the Bridgertons as fan, like as the characters are going to this musical and having to kind of sit through fist in mouth. <laughs> Breathing deeply, not being rude. Not being rude. And finding, you, you find out a lot about them by why they're turning up. So there are a few characters that are turning up because they recognise that the cellist, bless her heart, is the one that knows that they're bad and she's suffering as much as possible. Yikes. As much as the audience. That that fits with my view of a cellist, which is the wisest and it's certainly the sexiest of instruments because it's right there between the legs, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I had I had a theory with no concept of classical music ever. Violinists are the rock stars of the classical music. Absolutely right. Yeah? Absolutely right. I mean, as someone who doesn't play a string instrument, <laughs> I can say with authority that's true. Um, I, I work with a man, many, many string players at ABC Classic and there's definitely the hierarchy like high school of the the first violins, so they're the ones that lead. They've got the melody. Then you've got the second violins, which are playing literally second fiddle. Then you've got the violas who seem to be the butt of every single joke in classical music because they seem to be just the ones that everyone makes fun of. And then you've got that sexy, deep cello. I'm already feeling like a more engaged and more like prepared. Well, I think what's disappointing is this this character family of musicians wasn't in the show, were they? Or Not did I just yet. miss them? No, you haven't missed them. Not yet. I hold out great hope that we will because they they are initially introduced in the second book. I and see. the the series was based on effectively just based on the first book. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that we will actually meet the Smythe Smiths. The Smythe Smiths. That would have been a great opportunity for them to play around with the score. So maybe they'll basically be butchering the Vitamin Quartet's renditions of pop songs in the second season. All I want in life is a really bad rendition (laughs) of Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Oh, that's a fantastic idea. Right? Oh, wonderful. (laughs) And it was a woman who was picking the songs. So the score for Bridgerton was written by Chris Bowers, who has scored many other movies, and he's got that delightful bubbly foible-laden score that's appropriate for corsets being tightened and people getting ready for balls and complaining bratty children. But his musical supervisor was the person who went to this rock star quartet in LA, the Vitamin Quartet, and worked with them to pick the songs. Why there's Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande and Maroon 5. The Maroon 5 one blows my mind. It's it's an interesting choice. They're very lucky to be there as a band, (laughs) to be in the Bridgerton universe. Those are my thoughts. When when we get that song, it's, it's juxtaposed of an empty drawing room for Daphne and a very full drawing room for Marina. Mm. And so it's girls like you. And it, but it's a song that has lyrics like shit. I looked this up last night because I thought it was hilarious. Because <laughs> um, girls like you run round with guys like me till sundown when I come through. I need a girl like you. Yeah, yeah. Girls like you love fun. And yeah, me too. I want you when I like. I just wow. Like, it's iambic pentameter. <laughs> it's precious. It might speak to the 
the mating ritual of the drawing rooms. Somewhat. Somewhat. But ultimately, Maroon 5 is working and singing for their supper there and none of those gentlemen were doing anything of any value (laughs) in those drawing rooms. Is there a particular kind of pop song that lends itself to being classicalized? Is that? I really don't think so. I really don't think so. I I mean, there are so many pop songs that are based on classical songs. Uh, So many classical pieces of music that are beloved that are based on folk songs, which were the old pop songs of centuries gone by. It's all just melody. And you can take, you know, there are endless acoustic versions of R&B songs, rock songs out there, just beautiful, that would make you cry. Like, my God, I never realised this song was so sad or so beautiful. So once you've got the melody, you can really do absolutely anything you like with it. And that is what this rock star group is sort of like a 2020 version of Bond. Do you remember Bond? Is that a little bit too old for you, Rudy? I might be showing my age here, but I'm trying to I'm trying to think because I have I do have vague memories of a brunette with short hair and a violin. That, but like that, sounds... that might just describe all violinists. It might. But <laughs> Bond were this sort of group in the late 90s, early noughties that apparently um, my friend who is a classical musician and who comes from the UK said when he was at uni, you know, it was Sony, BMG or someone sent scouts out to all of the classical music schools in the UK and just had them go into rooms and pick out the hottest chicks and then picked four of them to be in this sort of like rock string quartet. They're amazing players, but they basically played with greased up legs and mini skirts and like their string songs were so popular and people were like, oh my God, the string quartet's getting like cool and sexy. You know, it was a flash in the pan. And Vitamin are sort of like that, except I think with more chops. Right. So yeah, can you can you tell me a little bit about like classicalizing pop songs? And I guess, like, why do they work? Like, what is it that we like about them? I think that there's something very, very pleasing about strings and string orchestras. I find generally a lot of bands like the Beach Boys, songs by the Beatles, will get set and arranged with string orchestras. And we love it. There's something just grander. There's something gentler. It's very soothing. There's a texture there that I honestly think works. And you notice it working in classical music radio as I do. What what sounds are easiest on the ears and your brain just likes? And I definitely think that's the case for strings. And a string quartet, it, it has the feeling of, in this case, the context is and the premise is right. You feel a bit sophisticated. You feel a little poised. But there's a familiarity in the melody when you hear, you know, Ariana Grande that, you feel some kind of empathy or familiarity probably is a better word with what's going on because it is known to you. So I think they've used it very cleverly because it's only one ingredient in the musical patchwork that is as genre bending in Bridgerton as the books clearly are and as the TV show is. It doesn't really stick to any particular rule because they've got Sufjan Stevens in there. They're using Beethoven's Fifth Symphony when the Queen is reading, you know, the column and is getting super angry. So they're using the score very cleverly. And I think that, you know, they definitely set out to make Bridgerton relevant. They didn't want it to just be uh, an Austen. They didn't just want it to be um, a Downton Abbey. So this is the way that they make their mark and that they make themselves relevant to a younger audience. 
obviously like I've been I've been watching it and trying to think about it critically and there are these things that signposts that they give their audience to kind of say this is a world that you probably recognize but we're going to bring a freshness to it so that you understand how to engage with it to not get too put off so yes no absolutely they they construct the rules of the universe from the first moment don't they Okay, an example would be in the remake of Little Women by Greta Gerwig. That's a beautiful film. And they incorporate music of the time diegetically into the scenes that are happening that are famous pieces of classical music, but they actually weren't quite written yet. And, you know, to some viewers that was a bit frustrating because the rest of it is just perfect. The rest of it is flawless. So why, if you look closer to this one detail, does it not quite make sense? That, that music is actually about 15, 20 years away. And in Bridgerton, from the very beginning, they're like, double finger, absolutely not. There are no rules. And I think it make, makes sense that there are two of the vitamin quartet arrangements of different pop songs in that very first episode. So they're telling you you can't get upset about this. So that when they put in a Shostakovich waltz that's about 150 years too late, no one actually cares anymore. It's just fun. That makes so much sense because, listen, we have two different things that happen at the same time and they, it's, it's cognitive dissonance. So on one hand, we're really, really pedantic about accuracy mm-hmm. and there is sort of an, there was an infamous incident where people had a bit of a meltdown about a scene in a book that included champagne flutes when there would not have been the coupe yeah it would have been a coupe so it was this whole thing about like how how can we trust (laughs) this world you've built Mm. if they're drinking from the wrong kind of glass (laughs) but on the other hand we're also willing to accept that there are a ridiculous number of eligible attractive and like not gross, like titled men that are looking to get married all at once and they have good teeth and they smell nice (laughs) and they have abs, even though that was like in in that era that would not have been attractive. (laughs) Absolutely. The teeth is really the biggest giveaway, (laughs) isn't it? Like so we're willing to we're willing to kind of let dentistry. Yeah. (laughs) We're willing to let this level of accuracy slide because Mm. that's part of the fantasy. But then these like details and it's this strange kind of tension that happens I think that Julia Quinn has always been a little bit like not bothered about details and Mm. it's nice to see that Shonda Rhimes has has also been like this show will not be taking itself more seriously than the book we are we are making this for a modern audience that's right and we we do look back on on 19 1995 Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, the the longer, the the more distance between us and those, you know, canon adaptations of Bonnet dramas, the more embarrassed we'll be about how white they were and about how few risks they took. It's sort of like, well, why should we watch? Like, I can just watch those. Why should I watch something new? It should be reflective of the fact that it's 2021. That's the least embarrassing option. Which classical musicians should we be looking out for? Oh, great question. You know, there's a whole bunch of classical music that's being made 
written right now. Um, and in fact, there are a couple of people that Bridgerton uses. They're very smart about who they pick. They've included some of the music they just flat out borrow, copy and paste into the score are controversial reimaginings of canon classical pieces that I'm a huge fan of. If you're a rusted on classical listener, you either love it or you hate it. And it gives me immense pleasure to watch the reaction. So those two works that you might want to pursue that are in Bridgerton are The Four Seasons Recomposed. So initially, Concerto by Vivaldi, his most, you know, famous piece. to spring, but they've been reworked on commission by Max Richter, who's one of the most successful contemporary composers today. Beautiful work. And the other one that they use is the Bach solo cello suites recompose. The music that Yo-Yo Ma is so famous for playing, just one little cello. Another cellist composer named Peter Gregson has got himself with his own instrument and all his cellist friends and has done this beautiful reimagining with more than one cello. Both of those albums you can find anywhere on the internet they're hugely popular and they might send you into a really beautiful sort of sonic place definitely music you can read romantic fiction to without it getting in your way I'd say in terms of looking for an Australian musician and composer that I'm absolutely obsessed with Belle Chen a fantastic pianist who graduated her studies recently in London and is now composing and improvising her own music all the time. You can find her on the internet absolutely anywhere, but she is just gorgeous. Beautiful music. I'm now realising, because I, I cannot recognise actual, like, canon classics. Oh, who cares? What are the ones that maybe I should, like, keep an ear out for when I'm doing my rewatch? Um, Beethoven 5, the, the Fifth Symphony, the ga-ga-ga-ga, that one. <laughs> Um, one of the most famous pieces of all time. That's definitely used brilliantly with the Queen because you it, it's just like you can't just give that to anyone. That's a brave, bold choice of piece for a character, but she's such a frightening boss that you totally buy it. It doesn't actually stick out that much to you when you watch it, which so you should you can listen out for it, but the sign of it being used well is that you're not like, oh my God, what is this doing there? Um, there's quite a lot of Beethoven in there. There's a famous Waldstein piano sonata there. There's plenty of Haydn and Mozart, string quartets as well. So maybe when you pick up that same texture as the pop songs by the Vitamin Quartet, you'll also pick up that same four instrument texture with some more 18th century appropriate, the music that definitely would have made it into the chamber salons of these rich houses in London, string quartets by Haydn and Mozart. But I'd say the Shostakovich waltz is brilliant. That's in, I think, the second episode at one of the dances, one of the many dances. There's so many dances um, and it's a waltz from what's incorrectly called his second jazz suite, but it's actually Shostakovich's suite for Variety Orchestra. And it's just so sassy and fun and a bit cooked because Shostakovich is a deeply complicated person. 
with lots of feelings and thoughts and, you know, a terrible regime to survive. So that one I definitely listen out to. And what I've heard, and I've sort of bookmarked this for my own rewatch, is that Simon and Daphne's theme, that romantic theme you hear in the original score by Chris Bowers that was written for Bridgerton, is based on a so far nameless piece by Ravel, a divine French composer of the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, And if you are interested in sort of listening out for that romantic theme and it sounds pleasing to you, that's a perfect example of how they came at the score. So they, that theme was apparently the sort of light bulb for finding the rest of the sound in the score. And that sound belongs 150 or maybe 100 years after the book is set. And it's got that French impressionism that people might like if they love Claire de Lune. Any music by Debussy, you'll also love music by Ravel and you could go and hunt for that. Any piano music by Ravel and you'll, you'll love it. Oh my God, I can't wait to just name drop all of this in casual conversations with people. This is so exciting because it's one of those things where like classical music always has always felt for me like a little bit too intimidating like too kind of scary to get into I mean that's you're not alone we all feel that way and look let's be honest it's if you want to go back and explore these famous pieces of music or these beloved composers it's so enjoyable avoid the boring stuff there's 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 more out there than you ever need to listen to but also these guys have had their time they are all almost without exception dead white men so enjoy what you want and then move on to composers like Bell Chen and you'll hear beautiful sounds that contemporary composers that are ethnically diverse and gender diverse are making today. And you're right, like the fact that those like older canon classic people are dead means that when I get it wrong, there's no one to yell at me. Oh my God, quite right. <laughs> quite right. Haydn can't get up and waggle his finger at you now, so go for it. Kate wanted to know what popular music looked like in Regency times and whether it had similar kind of derision? Yes. Um, I think, you know, we were talking about folk songs before. Um, at different periods from the, you know, 18th century onwards had different fads, musical fads and styles. Um, folk song was always there and folk song always found its way into those, you know, hallowed canonical pieces. Um, Beethoven loved folk song, Um, Haydn adored folk song, so did Mozart. So that was an idea of popular song that everyone would grow up hearing those songs. There were definitely in the 19th century salon pieces, so the sorts of pieces that the Smythe Smiths would be playing that families could master together. Um, Popular songs would be say, a reduction, a little chamber music or piano reduction of a famous aria from Don Giovanni or something like that. So, I mean, it was music, popular songs would be, especially outside of the cities, pieces that amateur musicians could play. There wasn't this sort of sense of there being high music and low music necessarily. Of course, like, you know, if you were lucky enough in 1808 to go out and see Beethoven's Fifth Symphony premiere, but you'd have to be in Vienna. You'd have to be in a big city. And of course, a lot of these Western Europeans weren't living in those places. They didn't have a big opera house to go and see. So these little reductions of that immense, you know, 100-piece orchestra score would come down to a piano and a violin, a little duet that, you know, sisters and brothers could play together at home. 
those melodies would become contagious. They become viral. So they had to make them accessible. And this is how publishers, music publishers, made huge amounts of money by publishing reductions of big famous scores. I went ahead and actually bought the, um, you can buy um, vitamin string quartets covers that they did in Bridgerton and it's just, so it's just those six. If I played... my The maths of music, as I say, is not, like whether I could tell you what's going in a bass line and then... Oh, I would just smile and nod at that. I listen to... <laughs> I actually do listen to um, a handful of music podcasts mm. where they do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I I started listening in the hope that I would learn how to speak about music and I would become better at incorporating music into my own work as a radio producer. Do you know what? Hasn't happened. Hasn't happened. <laughs> Hasn't inspired osmosis. For, yeah. <laughs> For someone who has, like, actively worked at learning about this stuff, who has a dance background and what I would consider a very good sense of musicality, I cannot (laughs) for the life of me. (laughs) Like, it just... I, I, I don't know. I don't know it how other people. On. Yeah. I well, don't know how other people do it. Either. And I guess like I talk about like the textures and the feels of music in my job. Yeah. Rather than unpacking it specifically. Yeah. Like Song Exploder or whatever. And I'm just like. I think, I think the most sophisticated I get is like whether I like it or I don't like it. Yeah. yeah. Can I dance That's to right. it or not? Is this good for me? <laughs> is this bad for me? Am I more miserable for listening? Yeah. <laughs> Tell, tell me how to talk about Billie Eilish as a classical piece. <laughs> well, what, what are we hearing there in Bad Guy? Uh, from my memory, this is when they're really hamming up their relationship, right? We're still pretty early on. They've, the subterfuge is well underway. No one has any idea what they're doing. There's a lot of uh, sideways glances at these balls and they're really playing up their relationship. And that music is, is, it's a comical arrangement. I mean, it's basically a tango, which makes it, again, period inappropriate and anachronistic. But it's so fearsome. That cello is really just hoeing in there down the bottom, a very low register. And all the other string instruments are sort of playing sassily on top. So you're hearing these two different voices. And see, because now I know that cellos are sexy. They are sexy. Listen to that. So that... Like, so that's like a sexy, like down low kind of thing happening mm. while everything's being like cheeky and fun at the top. That's right. Like on the surface. <gasps> you know, you're basically hearing those, the, you're hearing Daphne and Simon. I mean, Simon is definitely the cello. <laughs> he really is. He really is. It's a bit offensive. <laughs> like he, it would be nice if he could just tone it down, please. Like yeah, just, just dial it down thirty percent, and I'd listen to more of what he was saying. Like I just, I just need a minute. <laughs> just need a hot minute. Just Thanks, stop Simon. Lo- stop looking at me like that, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for this bonus episode of What Would Danbury Do? Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts because we'll be releasing bonus episodes throughout the season. 
And of course, we'll be back soon to discuss Bridgerton's second episode, Shock and Delight. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as at BridgertonPod and Instagram as WWDDPod. Or send us an email at BridgertonPod at gmail.com. We're still looking for people to send us book recommendations, thinly disguised as characters requesting advice from Lady Danbury. This episode was recorded and edited on the traditional and unceded land of the Gadigal people. Thanks for listening, and remember, WWDD. What Would Danbury Do is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.